Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the FT's UK Politics Podcast with me, Miranda Green. We're about to enter the week in which the UK actually leaves the European Union. Brexit Day is January the 31st. It will not be postponed. There is no longer any chance for the opposition to stop it. But it will not then be done. Our Brexit editor, David Bond, and political correspondent, Laura Hughes, will be here to help explain. Meanwhile, Chancellor Sajid Javid has been in Davos with the other bigwigs, talking up the UK economy post-Brexit. Our political commentator Robert Shrimsley and economics correspondent Delphine Strauss are here to discuss his plans. Robert, our colleague Chris Giles, who was in Davos, tells me that the Chancellor was charming to all the guests at the lunch which was held to promote British business. But when someone jokingly said, who are you? He took it seriously and said, I'm the Chancellor. You've been writing about his relatively low profile. It's quite remarkable. I didn't know that story. I don't know if it's a low profile. It's his status in the food chain, I think, within the cabinet. And it's actually quite an unusual one in recent times in that we have had in the last 20 years two incredibly powerful chancellors in Gordon Brown and George Osborne. And even Philip Hammond, although he had no great political base at the start, after Theresa May's setback in 2017, also became an extremely powerful chancellor. It's quite unusual to have a chancellor who is so clearly subordinate to and so clearly there to do the bidding of the prime minister. Boris Johnson clearly looked at recent political history and thought, if there's one thing I don't want, it's an overmighty chancellor challenging me and arguing with me about what we can and can't do. And I think it's fine to have a chancellor that you run in tandem with, but you do need a chancellor who can say to the prime minister, no, we can't do this. This is a really bad idea and for it to have real weight. I think Sajid Javid's problem is he has no personal political power base. He's totally sackable. I'm not saying he should be sacked, but the Prime Minister could sack him and move on if he chose to. And that does make him a weak Chancellor at the moment. Now, if he stays in place for two or three years and does a good job, things will change. But at the moment, what we have is a Prime Minister with no real rival political polls, no one who can challenge his authority and stop him doing something which might be a bad thing. And that's a problem for the economy, because we're about to go into some quite uncharted waters and you need someone who can speak up and be heard and fight his fight and say, we have to do this or we mustn't do this. Just one final point on that. His defenders will say, well, it did start badly, we admit. You know, having his special advisor marched out of Downing Street by Dominic Cummings, not a good moment. But during the election, he began to assert himself he stopped some really reckless commitments going into the election manifesto. He got a pledge made probably to scrap entrepreneurs' relief. So he's beginning to assert himself. And I think that's true. But at the moment, he is still asserting himself by permission of the prime minister rather than his own right. So he's quite compliant. The politics means that he has to be for now. I think he is compliant. And as you say, I think that's probably smart politics for the moment. 
but he has got to start asserting himself. And I think the budget is a key moment for him. It's a budget he's drawing up very much with the Prime Minister, which again is not something that always happens when the Chancellor is very strong. Blair and Brown, there were fights, weren't there, about whether Brown would actually show Blair the budget in advance. and, And Tony Blair used to have to bounce Gordon Brown's spending commitments by announcing them on television before he'd agreed them. So, I mean, at the moment, it's still very much a junior partnership. And I think that's something that he's got to work on. He's also got to show what he wants to be Chancellor for. Now, we know there are certain things that he's passionate about, a skills revolution, but that's one of those phrases we hear all the time. No one knows what it means. He's passionate about borrowing at very low and negative interest rates to upgrade infrastructure. But that's not something whose benefits will begin to be seen for a long, long time. So he's got to find ways of showing this levelling up concept happening in real time. I'm personally keeping on buses, but there we go. Delphine. There is a little bit of good news on the economy this week, isn't there? As Robert was saying, it's questionable whether the Chancellor gets any credit for anything good that happens on the economy or whether it's seen as a Boris bounce. But can you talk us through this week and how much we should conclude about good news for the economy? So I think we're still waiting to see how far Javid's going to have luck on his side going into the budget. We are now seeing fairly clear signs of having had a post-election bounce in sentiment. We had this morning the first important bit of data on that front, the PMI surveys, which have shown, you know, a pretty distinct pickup in business confidence. They followed a couple of other sort of smaller scale surveys along the same lines. And we've also had some decent evidence on the consumer side of maybe car sales improving and the housing market picking up. But I think we're still very much waiting to see whether that actually translates into, you know, a real pickup in activity on the ground. We've seen in the past that these sentiment surveys can overstate what's really happening when you get sort of a big political turning point and then maybe the official data doesn't actually change to the same extent. And given just how pessimistic everybody was feeling October, November, it's maybe not that surprising you get a sentiment survey that looks better three months later. And then they were jumping on, weren't they, the the sort of international growth forecast. Was it the IMF where it looked as if Britain was going to do slightly better than the Eurozone, and that was sort of enthusiastically tweeted out by uh, Conservative supporters. Yes. I mean, I think looking forward, there's two things to watch for. One is how much of a fiscal boost we may get in the budget, because that will feed into growth. But also on the global backdrop, are we going to get as much support there from conditions improving as maybe we thought a month or two back? We've had some sort of slightly disappointing data at the Eurozone today, which is some in export markets. And then the IMF's forecast for the world economy were fairly downbeat this week. So it's not quite clear what you know how much of a tailwind we're going to get from that. You wrote very interestingly this week, didn't you, about the talk of the great British growth bonanza that could come that Javid has been presaging is for the birds. 2.7%, is that right, Delphine? Is that doable? Well, in a way, that seems to have been a fairly throwaway remark if, you know, our goal is to get back to the post-war average pre-crisis, the kind of growth we saw every year pre-crisis and that we haven't seen since the 2008 crisis. That's a lovely goal. Um, <laughs> It's not at all clear where it comes from, because basically, if you want long term sustainable growth at that level without inflation taking off, you have to get either an increase in your labour supply or an increase in productivity. On the size of the labour force, we've got really high employment at the moment. We've had a big pickup in participation. Maybe there's scope for some more people to come into the labour market, maybe especially in the regions that the government wants to put more money into. But it's really hard to see that it would be a step change, especially if they're clamping down on the immigration front post-Brexit. Productivity, Javed is doing some of the right things, focusing on skills, putting money into infrastructure and so on. But that only pays off very long term. 
And it's really hard to see that it would give you the kind of step change in productivity that is eluding almost every country in the developed world. So, yes, long-term growth could improve. 2.8%, really hard. So, Robert, in Delphine's piece, which you alluded to, she quotes an economist saying, the golden age of capitalism is gone. Is it a good idea for a chance to talk about 27 2.8% growth if he can't deliver it? I mean, is that not just a terrible political hostage to fortune? It's so tempting to revert into Borisism, the gloomsters and doomsters. <laughs> and I don't know about the golden age of capitalism being gone forever. Who can see this far ahead? One of the things I struggle with, and when I talk to ministers and officials, they struggle with too, mm. is say, OK, you've gone for this model of Brexit, which is full divergence and all the consequences, and you say there are wins from this. What are the economic wins from this? And it gets very flabby very quickly. Well, maybe in bio and pharmaceuticals, we can have some benefits. The best you can come up with is people say to you, well, the truth is we're going to be leaner. It's going to make Britain a fitter economy, more productive, and it's going to force us to be more competitive. It's very vague and it's very woolly. And you find yourself thinking, I don't know that you have any kind of economic strategy post-Brexit. And maybe that's because Brexit was never about economic strategy. It was about other things. But the claims that are being made for how Brexit will give Britain the boost. It's very hard the moment you stop asking people to get into specifics. And Robert, what about this idea of rewriting the Treasury rulebook, you know, mm. so that all these infrastructure projects can go ahead based on a completely different case as they relied on so far? This is to do with the so-called levelling up of the British regions. Is it going to happen? Is it going to offer some sort of return other than a political return in those districts they need to keep blue at the next election? Well, it's definitely going to happen. I mean, the Green Book, as it's called, is being rewritten. And I think that will be a feature of the budget in March. So they are going to rewrite the terms and conditions under which investment is made. At the moment, the problem is that the value for money criteria they use always seems to favour London and the South because it's where you get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of economic return. And I think it's completely reasonable and viable for the Treasury and for the government to say, this cannot be the only criteria we use. We do have to put investment to other parts of the country. As long as it's still viable investment, I think this is the key thing. What we don't want is Humber Bridges spewing up all that. And someone put it rather nicely. Boris Johnson's never seen a bridge project he didn't like. Well, yeah, well some of those and don't get built, remember. That's true. <laughs> but that, the things could change. So I think if you have infrastructure projects which have no viable economic case whatsoever, then the likelihood is they're not going to do any good for the regions they're being built in either. On the other hand, if they do have a viable case, they're just not as fantastic in the return as some of the projects in London. Well, then I think there's a strong political argument for saying, well, we are trying to do something different here. And I think at that point, it's perfectly reasonable. So I think if the rules are rewritten in a sane and careful way, which I think they probably will be, then I think this is a reasonable approach. Delphine, what do economists say about this kind of repositioning of the Treasury in terms of infrastructure projects? Are they worried about, you know, white elephants scattered across the Midlands or not? Do they see it as a, an appropriate corrective to boost other regions that haven't been as prosperous as London and the South East? I mean, I think there are different views out there. There is certainly an argument for doing it, simply saying, you know, the way the rule book is written at the moment, there is a self-fulfilling thing that the most densely populated areas that have the most productive businesses already will, by definition, look as if they are the ones where investment will pay off most. That doesn't necessarily mean it won't pay off other places that just simply haven't got there yet. I think you need to recognise that it's a perfectly valid priority to say we want to get the economy going in these left-behind regions. There may be some trade-offs in whether that leads to 
a slightly lower outcome for national growth or national productivity growth than would otherwise be the case. That trade-off is okay as long as you make it knowingly. <laughs> it's interesting though, isn't it? Because that's a trade-off with your own ambitions if you've said you're going to go for 2.7% possibly growth. <laughs> Robert, obviously, as we've said, there's the budget coming up, but there's also a huge reshuffle anticipated within the next few weeks, month or so. Do we think Javid will hang on? Yes, presumably. Yes. He is the only cabinet minister with a public pledge that he is safe in his job. I think it would be... And Boris Johnson is a man of his word, well, There is that, know. of course. I think it would be extremely harsh to remove him before he's even given a budget. I think he's going to get a budget and maybe a bit longer. And as I said, although I think he is at the moment eminently disposable... It doesn't have to stay that way. If he has a good year, a good 18 months, he could become a really significant figure. What I think is interesting is that unlike some of the other chancellors, you see no indication that he is interested in dabbling in domestic policy more broadly and trying to set the whole framework of domestic policy. He sees the Treasury very much as the driver of finance and the economy. And of course, one of the things that may well happen in this reshuffle is the creation yet again of a souped-up business ministry or souped-up DTI, as I still think of it, it's showing my age. Um, <laughs> Another attempt to make this second economic ministry a deliverer of industrial policy. That is a challenge to the Treasury. Although the Treasury people I talk to put a good face on it, say, oh, no, it's going to be a good customer for our policy. But that will, I think, also dent his and the Treasury's status. And if it goes, as is widely rumoured to Rishi Sunak, the current deputy at the Treasury, the chief secretary at the Treasury, that also creates a chancellor in waiting should Boris Johnson decide he's not happy with Sajid Javid. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because sometimes being chancellor is seen as a step on the road to the top job. That doesn't seem to be the case with Javid, but perhaps it might be for Rishi Sunak if he gets this huge promotion because they were punting him in the election as a spokesman. It's interesting how few chancellors do make it to number 10. It's not as good a stepping stone as you think it should be. I think the truth is we just can't know. There's no reason why Sajid Javid can't have a few good years and emerge as a very strong contender. On the other hand, the better he is as Chancellor, the better things go for this government and the better it goes for Boris Johnson and the longer he stays. So you just can't say, all you can say is that if he manages to project himself, do well, gain in credibility, that he'll become a more substantial figure in the Conservative Party as and when a leadership vacancy arises. I'm now joined by David and Laura. Now, whether you are a Leaver or a Remainer, this is a momentous week. By the time we record the next episode, when Seb gets back from his holiday, Britain will no longer be an EU member state. But Laura, no bongs to mark the moment. What is actually going to happen in Westminster next week? Yeah, no bongs to the great disappointment of all of those who donated a lot of money to fund the Elizabeth Tower getting back up and running to mark the occasion. Instead, Downing Street have come to some sort of compromise and it's been a bit of a tortured process because they're reluctant to be seen to celebrate this. They're aware that half the country didn't want it to happen in the first place and that this is only the beginning of a very long process. So instead, there's going to be a big light display in Downing Street. Whitehall will be lit up, red, white and blue. The flags are going to be out and there's going to be a countdown clock on number 10, marking the moment that the UK does finally leave the European Union. So it's a lot less than was expected. And also the Prime Minister is going to be hosting a special meeting of his cabinet somewhere in the north of England, where they will talk about the government's commitment to levelling up all the regions in the UK. And it's all part of an effort to 
reward voters who lent them their vote in the election, normal traditionally Labour voting areas. They're very aware of that. And so they're going to be talking about sharing prosperity across the regions on the 31st of January. But David, Brexit, of course, isn't over on January the 21st, although the government would desperately like to uh, convince us otherwise. Although, of course, I'll be out of a job as Brexit editor. No, you won't. No, you're going to be there in perpetuity, I'm afraid, as this story continues. How do you actually rate the government's chances of making sure the word is even spoken as little as possible, trying to move the debate on. Because obviously we're then moving into the trade negotiations and this is very high stakes for our economy. Are they going to manage to talk about other things? Well, I'm sure they'll be trying to, but I think the way the story will go, Miranda, is it'll sort of have peaks and troughs. And I think obviously next week is a very big peak in this long-running saga and that you will have a big push around March, I would think, as the EU finalises its negotiating mandate for the trade talks and they start to engage properly. And then things might go quiet for a while while the talks progress and then you'll get another pinch point around June, which is the time when Boris Johnson has to work out if he really isn't going to ask for an extension beyond the current deadline to get a trade deal, which is December the 31st, 2020. So I think it will go up and down, but clearly... If these trade talks are going badly and it looks like Johnson may either have to renege on that pledge not to extend or it looks like we're just not going to get a deal and we're facing another cliff edge, then I can't see how Johnson moves the agenda on very much. Laura, what are they planning to do if people like yourself irritate them by continuing to utter the word Brexit in press conferences and in the lobby briefings every morning. I know they don't want us to use the word, but it's going to be unavoidable over the next few months. It's also going to be very techie, though. And that's, I think, partly why they don't want us to talk about Brexit. They almost want to distinguish this as something completely different, complicated, techie trade talks, discussions about regulation, things that most people might not want to hear about from the media every day. But I think where it's going to get interesting in terms of the next few months is going to be on the issue of fishing. And it's going to be unavoidable to mention the B word then because it's going to become a really big sticking point. And it's so symbolic of a lot of people's decision to vote for Brexit in the first place because they understood that the UK had given up certain access to its territorial waters to the EU. I think that that's something I know I'm going to be watching very, very closely and You just can't not use the word Brexit over the next few months or whatever they tell us and however they try and spin this. There'll be a lot of fishermen and Brexit voters following that particular issue incredibly carefully. So Laura's going to be on fish patrol. David. Yeah. um, You know, Laura has said, obviously, the government's hopes are that the discussion becomes techie, great FT territory, not necessarily, you know, leading the six o'clock news every night to distress the population. But actually... These signals that are coming out, even from the Treasury, are quite confusing already, aren't they? I mean, last week we had the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, giving an interview to the FT and saying, absolutely, de-alignment, we're going to diverge dramatically from the EU. And then this week he's been going around Davos trying to reassure businesses, apparently, that actually we will be quite closely aligned and that business interests are front and foremost in his considerations. Which is it? How do we get to the bottom of what their intentions are? Yeah, I think, again, you know, I hate to keep going on about uncertainty for business in the Brexit process. But even after next week, when the UK comes out of all the EU institutions, of course, the uncertainty will continue until it's clear what that new trading arrangement is with the EU. 
On the question of alignment, I thought that was pretty stark, the message that Javid uh, delivered to business last week. And then, of course, he's rode back from it in his meeting with the CBI in Davos. I suppose it all goes to the heart of how you define alignment. And this is back to Laura's point and your point that a lot of this stuff is going to be incredibly technical and incredibly difficult to explain. But as a trade expert I saw for a coffee this week said, he's been delving into this stuff for years. This is his life. And then suddenly the Times, I think, wrote a story midweek about mutual recognition. And he said, this is suddenly going to be the information and the vital stuff of stories that journalists like us are going to have to Right, and of course we do this on the FT all the time. On the question of alignment, does that mean the UK saying, all right, we're not going to be a rule taker, which is what Sajid Javid said from Brussels, but does that not mean that you could perhaps align with EU rules and get the same outcome? So I think all these things are terms that are there to be played with a little bit, and I think that the clarity around them won't become clear for some time. It's different though, David, isn't it, for goods or services and for the kind of service-heavy bit of the UK economy alignment could be quite helpful, even if it's not within EU rules. Yeah. And funnily enough, of course, Mark Carney, the outgoing governor of the Bank of England, said in an interview with the FT a couple of weeks ago that he thought the city should be brave enough to diverge from EU rules because, of course, it's our strongest sector and 80% of the economy is services. The bulk of those are financial services. The worry around this trade deal is principally about the movement of goods across the border from the UK to the EU. So when we have the new trade deal, what is the level of friction that companies in the UK are going to feel, particularly around manufacturers, food and drink, the car industry, those businesses that really rely on last minute supply chains, low margin businesses, in any increase in friction is going to be painful for them. And so I think this is where so much will depend on the sort of negotiation they can do with Brussels on the key point about not just tariffs, but in terms of paperwork, in terms of the administrative costs, it will go up. Laura, can I ask you about the mood on the Tory backbenches? Because obviously there are a whole host of fresh meat, as it were, on the Tory backbenches. And some people were hoping that that might mean a tack towards a slightly softer Brexit because those are areas which are manufacturing areas, export industries based there. What are those new Tory MPs saying to you about the Brexit process now that we're getting into the trade talks? Well, privately, they may acknowledge that actually we do need some sort of alignment to protect those jobs in manufacturing industries in constituencies that they represent. But publicly, they all signed up to the Prime Minister's manifesto in the general election and they are incredibly loyal to him. And where this alignment issue become simpler to explain to the public and where I think it would capture people and Brexit voters' attention is that it's really very sensitive for Boris Johnson because he needs to show that the UK has taken back control. And this is one of the areas where he can say that he has. And the EU on the other side, who are incredibly worried about the UK emerging as an economic competitor, they're going to be worried. That's the way I think it will really hit people. And when it comes down to that, and when it comes down to discussions over level playing fields and us potentially having to abide by certain EU laws, that's going to be really difficult for Boris Johnson to explain. And I think in that instance, a lot of those MPs will just, you know, buck up and stick with the government line. There really aren't many of them at the moment who I've seen are remotely willing to go against the party line and challenge Boris Johnson in any way even if potentially privately they know their constituents' interests might not be best served by what their Prime Minister is doing. 
And that's it for this week. Sebastian Payne will be back in this chair next week. But for now, thanks to my guests, Robert, Delphine, David and Laura, and to our producers, Anna Dedder and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.